Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time, first-time biographer and professor of philosophy at Colby College, Lydia Moland, talks about her book, Lydia Maria Child, A Radical American Life, published by the University of Chicago Press in November 2022. We recorded our interview on November 3rd, 2022 via Squadcast. Who is Lydia Maria Child? So Child was born in 1802 in Medford, Massachusetts. Uh, She lived in Massachusetts most of her life. She was born to a baker and his wife who didn't particularly value education, especially for girls, but through a combination of an older brother who loved books and just a kind of voracious intellectual appetite. By the time she was in her early 20s, child had become something almost unheard of in the American 19th century. She was a self-sufficient, beloved female author. She had written a couple of novels. She had written some children's stories. She had been asked to edit one of the first periodicals for children in the United States. And then in 1829, she wrote something called The Frugal Housewife, which was a uh, one of the United States' first cookbooks and also kind of domestic self-help book. So it had all kinds of information about how to get rid of bed bugs, and how to cure dysentery. Uh, So by the time she was in her early 30s, she was, I think, the 19th century equivalent of a household name, a really beloved and trusted author. And then in 1830, she met a man named William Lloyd Garrison, who, as many of your listeners will know, was one of the most prominent white abolitionists in Boston. And I hasten to say that Garrison was building on the work of Black abolitionists like Mariah Stewart and David Walker, who had been um, advocating for the liberation of enslaved people for a long time. But Garrison was one of the first white people really to listen and really to try to mobilize other white people to become abolitionists. I think it's really important for us to remember that to be an abolitionist in the 1830s was to be a radical. The historian Kelly Carter Jackson has compared it to saying that you were a communist in the 1950s. Even Northerners who vaguely disapproved of slavery did not think that it should be ended immediately or without compensation to enslavers, which is what abolitionists claimed. And so you could be anti-slavery but still not think that slavery should be ended immediately. There's a theme of genteelness throughout this book, and I'd like you to describe the abolitionist movement in the 1820s in Boston in particular. You use terms like genteel or moderate. So tell me a little bit more about that. So your average white northerner and white Bostonian in the 1820s and 30s heard a lot of arguments convincing them that slavery was maybe not that bad, 
maybe it was actually good for Africans to be enslaved because that way they could be converted to Christianity. And even if slavery was bad, it was really important not to rock the boat because the United States had barely survived a couple of pretty major tensions around slavery. So there had been a split a couple of times or close to a split a couple of times. Namely the Missouri Compromise, for instance, correct? Exactly, right. So that's a great example of a moment when um, Maine, where I live, petitioned for statehood and was told that they would be allowed to be independent of Massachusetts only if slavery was allowed to expand into Missouri. And that was a a very fraught compromise. Uh, Thomas Jefferson himself said that this problem would be back and that the United States had escaped united over you know, in that particular case, but that probably it wouldn't survive the slavery question forever. Uh, so there are lots of political reasons to be against abolitionists. There were also lots of economic reasons to be against abolitionists because many Northerners had made their fortunes or even just their middle class livelihood off of investing in the slave trade. So for all of those reasons, all the way through the 1820s uh, and you know, well into the Civil War, Northerners were encouraged not to agitate against slavery. And then, as I say, there were in the 1820s, then some Black abolitionists in particular who started to write things and say things that got some white people's attention, and William Lloyd Garrison was one of them. Right. So Lydia Maria Child meets William Lloyd Garrison. She writes an appeal in 1833 that is sort of off the heels of David Walker's appeal of 1829. Tell me what this did to her social life. Yeah. So William Lloyd Garrison essentially recruited Child. He knew that she was a powerful writer. He knew that she was someone who could appeal to people's sentiments, but was also very good at dispensing advice. So he asked her he he asked her to write for him and then he converted her to abolitionism. So she wrote about it later very much like a conversion experience, the scales fell from her eyes, she couldn't live her life the same way again. She was deeply ashamed of the fact that she hadn't seen that slavery was evil that she had allowed people to convince her not to pay attention or not to care. And then the question really became what could she contribute to the cause of abolition. And she decided to sacrifice essentially her reputation as a beloved author and self-help author. So she spent these three years writing, researching and writing a book that she published in 1833 called An Appeal in Favor of That Class of Americans Called Africans. And this was a book that had a chapter on the history of slavery and on the economics of slavery and the politics of slavery. And then as its last chapter, theme of its last chapter was Northern complicity in slavery. So that chapter starts with a sentence like, while we express our earnest disapprobation on our brethren of the South, let us not flatter ourselves that we are any better than they. And so she talked about Northern fortunes made off of enslavement, but she also talked about how Northern politicians had been complicit in supporting slavery, how the Northern economy was bound up with slavery, 
and then how Northern racism supported slavery. So she was very clear that race prejudice and the hatred that many white people showed to Black people in Boston, driving them out of their churches, refusing to allow them to be in trade unions or in schools, that slavery would not continue if Northerners were not supporting it in those ways. So as you can imagine, this is not what your average Northerner wanted to hear. They were happy to take you know, cooking tips from Lydia and Mariah Child. They did not want to be told that they were complicit in slavery. Her book sales plummeted. Many of her books went out of print. She had to give up her editorship of this juvenile miscellany, the periodical. And she was essentially ostracized from Boston polite society. You speak about this idea of a conversion, almost like a religious conversion, from somebody who was born and raised in such a devout uh, religious family. And in fact, her brother was a preacher. She rejects religion altogether. And by the end of her life, she gives her money after she dies to causes that have nothing to do with religion. And in fact, she's like, I don't want any of my money to go to religious organizations whatsoever. Tell me about her relationship with her husband and sort of this life that they built together based in abolitionism. She always admired Jesus' message of love and brotherhood among all humans. She was also convinced by Jesus' message that force should never be used, that we should always turn the other cheek when we were attacked. But she hated what the church had done to Christianity. She hated the way it defended slavery, the way it promoted racial prejudice, the way preachers were really conservative forces against some of the causes that she loved the most, foremost among them abolitionism. So she had an early kind of flirtation with Swedenborgianism, which was a which is another sort of branch kind of Christianity, but not really. Um, but spent the rest of her life refusing to join a church, but very much preaching the gospel, as it were, of equality before God. As far as her husband is concerned, he was an amazingly progressive human being. He was an abolitionist in spirit anyway before she was. He was an advocate for equality between men and women before she was. He was also a walking financial disaster who ruined them financially every time they got ahead a little bit. And really to admire Lydia Mariah Child is to have very complicated feelings for her husband. They actually separated for about 10 years at one point after they went bankrupt. And if I could just briefly say why they went bankrupt, it was at least in part because he decided that one of the ways he wanted to fight slavery was to grow sugar beets in an attempt to undermine the plantation cane sugar trade. So they were just throwing everything they had at the abolitionist cause, including farming and trying to upend the agricultural underpinning of enslavement. Anyway, they went bankrupt and they partly as a result of the tensions around that and also tensions that she felt with the way he approached abolitionism Um, They separated for about 10 years, but then they did reunite and spent the last couple of decades of their lives fairly happily married. As a philosophy professor, 
How did you come across Lydia Mariah Child? I was so fortunate. This was after the 2016 election. I decided that I wanted to do something different with my scholarship. So I've very happily done German philosophy for my whole career. And I just decided that I wanted my CV to reflect what I see as a moral emergency in my country. And I decided that I would use my strengths in 19th century history to try to look at another point in our history when people had been forced to change their lives to confront an evil. And I had a vague recollection that women had been important voices in the abolitionist movement. And I went looking for one. And I was very lucky. I essentially stumbled on a letter by Lydia Mariah Child in the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe. And it electrified me. It was a letter that expressed a lot of wisdom, some self-deprecation, a lot of kind of wearied experience in the in a cause. It was written later in her life. I didn't know who she was. I had to look her up. And once I discovered her, and really the way she uses philosophical thinking to try to convince people to change the way they think and the way they act, I, I really resonated with that. And so I, I wanted to write a biography of her that would bring out the way she thinks philosophically and the way she uses argumentation to as I sometimes think of it, clear out the underbrush of bad arguments that we still use to continue living our lives in the face of things that I think in our heart of hearts we know need to change. I guess I thought that in order to dedicate your life to ending an evil like slavery, you would have to be thinking philosophically. You'd have to ask questions like, what is justice? What is equality? And she's a wonderful example of someone who did that. For someone who had been a household name, such as Lydia Mariah Child, why do you think you had never heard of her? Yes, this is another wonderful question. And I should say, too, that one of the ironies of working on Child is that very few people have heard of her, but almost anyone in who was raised in the United States can recite something she wrote because she wrote over the river and through the wood to grandfather's house we go. And the fact that she is famous for that sentimental poem and not for her half century of work in racial justice, the irony of that would not have been lost on her. Why is she so little known now? I think there are a couple of reasons. One is definitely gendered. She was not given the same attention that male abolitionists were given. She was not celebrated through her life the same way male abolitionists were. She was also constrained by family care issues. She never had her own children, but she was definitely saddled with the care of her aging father and then of her husband in ways that male abolitionists were not. But I'll also say that by the end of her life, she really disliked what she called lionizing. She did not like that people were turning some abolitionists into heroes and putting them up on pedestals. She was very uncomfortable with that. So she actively resisted people who wanted to write about her in anthologies or write biographies of her. And sometimes I wonder if I should have written a biography of her, given that she was so resistant to that. 
let me put it this way. When she died, as, as she was nearing her death, she said something like, I can't wait to get rid of this physical body so that I can continue working in spirit. And I consider paying attention to her work and paying attention to her arguments a way to enable her to continue working in spirit. So it's in that vein that I I try to talk about her work. But I do think by the end of her life also, she felt like her cause had failed in some really important ways. So slavery had ended, but she lived long enough to see Reconstruction fail and to see the racial prejudice that she had long said would reappear if slavery was ended with violence rather than with a change in white people's hearts. That violence resurfaced in ways that she, I think correctly, predicted would continue to haunt this country. At times you grapple on the page with child's activism where she falls short or is problematic in some way. Tell me about a moment that was the most cringeworthy for you. Yes, I was really determined to try not to have this book be a contribution to the genre of the white hero. And I acknowledge that I admire her and that I think she has a lot to teach white people like me, quite frankly. But I did want to be really honest with my readers that there are things that she got wrong. So one that I agonized quite a bit about was she wrote and edited a book called The Freedman's Book at the end of the Civil War. And the goal of this book was to help newly emancipated Black Americans learn to read and also to learn history. And she was absolutely determined that they also learned that Black people had played an important part in world history. So she talks about Black scientists and poets and politicians, but she also makes very clear to them that Black people had agitated and fought for their own emancipation, that they weren't just victims. So she's very progressive in those ways. Nevertheless, when she came to write her own essay in this volume, one of the things that she says to her Black audience is that if they just act respectively, if they dress nicely and talk softly, have clean homes, nice yards, that white people will lose their prejudice, come to respect them, and start treating them as equals. Child knew that was false. She is on record in other contexts saying that she knew that urging Black people to just act respectably, in many cases, enraged white people. So they did not want to see Black people succeeding economically or politically. That's part of the reason that Reconstruction failed. So I think, first of all, insofar as she was always putting an additional burden on Black people to act respectably in the hopes that they would be more acceptable to their white neighbors, she was putting an extra burden on them that I don't think was fair. And then also in essentially, on the one hand, wringing her hands about how this wasn't going to work, and then telling the victims of this prejudice that it was going to work, I think she put even more pressure on them to, you know, to, to be to blame in a way if white people didn't lose their prejudice. And there are many instances like that throughout her life, 
that certainly have made me think harder about some of my attitudes towards my own role as a white person. What were some of the more surprising things that you learned in your archival research process that didn't make it to the page? I think there there were more things that I would have wanted to say about the violence that Black people and Black abolitionists in particular suffered during this whole period. You might know Carrie Greenidge has an amazing new biography out about the Grimke family, and I've been reading that. And well, let me put it this way. One of the most shocking things to me in my research just generally was the amount of anti-abolitionist violence that happened all the way through the North. Um, some of that evidence didn't, I didn't get enough of it into the book. So those, there are moments like that, that I think I, I really hope people go to the biographies of Black abolitionists to learn more about. Because although Child did face violent mobs a couple of times, she could also blend into the crowd. She could, you know, kind of be anonymous whenever she needed a break or couldn't take the strain anymore. And that was not true for Black abolitionists. And I think that should be more of our our story. One of the reasons I'm so happy to talk about Child on this podcast is that she herself was a biographer. So she wrote several biographies of women early in her career, but later wrote a biography of an abolitionist named Isaac Hopper. So Isaac Hopper was a Quaker in Philadelphia who was very influential on the Underground Railroad and also was a kind of point person for enslaved people fleeing out of the South into Philadelphia. When he died, he asked Child to write his biography. And she really used that as an opportunity to tell the stories of fugitives escaping enslavement as a way, I think, of getting white readers who wouldn't otherwise have shown an interest in those stories to read them. And in those stories of people fleeing enslavement, she's so clear about the agency and the resourcefulness and the Black community support that made these escapes possible. And she also makes it very clear that white people were often complicit in making those escape attempts fail and in enforcing enslavement um, and enforcing the Fugitive Slave Law when it was in, in force. And so in a way, she told Isaac Hopper's story through the stories of people that he encountered, Black people who were fle- freeing enslavement. And so it has become one of the records that we have of people's biographies who all too often would otherwise have been lost to history. You wrote this book during a tumultuous time in our nation's history about another complicated time in our nation's history. And I wonder what that was like, how your writing process was, how much you had to step away from your work, or were you really drawn into it? So tell me about that process. I was very lucky that I had done almost all of the archival work that I needed to do before the pandemic hit. So Child's letters are still only available on microfiche. So I spent weeks in the Boston Athenaeum at a microfiche uh, machine trying to get it in focus and um, taking PDFs of thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. And as I say, I, I did go to archives in a couple of places. 
And so I was really, yeah, again, I was lucky. I was mostly able then to rely on what I had gathered and also on a couple of excellent biographies of child that were written in the 1990s, including one by Carolyn Karcher and one by Deborah Clifford. These were path-breaking women historians writing about a woman who had, you know, (laughs) has now essentially been forgotten. They were doing it without the help of the internet especially Carolyn Karcher as, with her expertise as an Americanist and a specialist in literature. So I, I relied on their guidance a lot. And then fortunately, was, I was so grateful to libraries and archivists who were willing to keep working during the pandemic and send things uh, when I needed them and also relied on the incredible resources and internet archive and some of the other search engines that have now archived newspapers and journals. And as far as the way things unfolded historically in our time, yeah, I will say that it was almost uncanny. I was writing the chapter about the Civil War when the January 6th insurrection happened. I was documenting an insurrection that used the Confederate flag at the same time as I was seeing these photographs of people parading through the United States Capitol with Confederate flags, including that famous photograph of someone with a Confederate flag unfurled in the Capitol in front of a painting of Charles Sumner, who, as many of your listeners will know, was the Massachusetts abolitionist senator who was beaten almost to death on the floor of the Senate after he had given an an abolitionist speech. That really resonated for me in part because Sumner often said that it was reading Lydia Mariah Child that was one of the things that made him an abolitionist. So when he was almost killed, she was left thinking that that he was dying for beliefs that she had to take some responsibility for converting him to, and she never would have changed anything about that. She wanted to convert people to abolitionism. But you can imagine that she that that hit her very hard in a way that, again, just felt very resonant. There's a kind of strange comfort in recognizing how hard people were fighting against racial injustice in the 19th century. I've, I've often asked myself, why should that feel comforting? It feels comforting in a way to find a kindred spirit in, in people who were also convinced that white people needed to change their lives in order to fight racial injustice. But the fact that that's still true um, is very dispiriting. You write that proceeds from this book will be distributed to organizations that work towards child's hope for a more just world. Can you be more specific on that? Yes, I've thought a lot about this. And and let me just say, this is what Child did her whole life, including with her biography of Isaac Hopper. She just said there was no way she was going to sell his life and keep the profits for herself. She wanted, and when she wrote the Freedman's book, all of the proceeds from that went to printing more copies of the Freedman's book. She funded that by writing books about aging, actually. So this so it would never have felt right to me to write this book about her and then keep the proceeds. I am an incredibly privileged and fortunate person. I have a steady income. I do not need this extra income. And to make more money off of a story of enslavement would have um, felt wrong to me in every way. 
And I've learned a lot from Black authors and people of color who have helped me learn about that. So I'm grateful to them for their guidance as well. One of the organizations that I feel most passionate about um, is an organization called Wabanaki Reach, which is a Maine-based organization run by the Wabanaki Confederacy, which is a group of Native American tribes here in Maine. I've learned so much from them. They are an amazing educational and advocacy organization. And Child cut her political teeth on learning about the injustice perpetuated against the Wabanaki in particular. She lived in Maine as a teenager. I think one of the first times she really confronted the injustice her country was doing was when she learned about how the Wabanaki here had been treated. She went on to make arguments about Native Americans that were, again, bracingly progressive for her time, but still very problematic. So she was very clear that she thought Native Americans should assimilate and they they should be educated to be as much like European Americans as possible. That was perpetuated in the boarding schools that took Native children out of their environments and isolated them from their cultures. That legacy lived on in Maine through the child welfare organization in Maine well into the 20th century. Wabanaki Reach has done a lot of work to educate people about the harm that that's done. So that's one of the ways that I feel like I'm trying to bring child's story full circle and give some of the proceeds of this book as a way of, I don't quite want to say reparations because it's not for me to repair what she did, but a way of bringing it full circle. Writing about child has made me morally paranoid in a way such that I feel very clear that there are doubtless things that well-intentioned white people like me are missing that are major injustices right under our noses. And I've become convinced that the mass incarceration system is one of them. And so one of the ways I'm trying to funnel the funds that I can is towards organizations that are addressing mass incarceration and the racial disparities within mass incarceration in particular. That was first-time biographer and professor of philosophy at Colby College, Lydia Moland, talking with bio member Jenny Skoog about her book, Lydia Maria Child, A Radical American Life. It was published by the University of Chicago Press in November 2022. This interview was recorded via Squadcast on November 3, 2022. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>